and one and two and two and one oh shucks i can't dance Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Audrey Tang, the Digital Minister for Taiwan. But she isn't just a public servant. Audrey has a very rich international work history, and her influence ranges from coding to Silicon Valley startups to research and even grassroots activism that helped to transform a government. And she was able to do all of this before she was 40. And to top it all off, even though she is currently the digital minister for Taiwan, she officially retired about five years ago. And today, we will take an in-depth look at Audrey herself and how she's been able to accomplish so much in so little time. Hello, Audrey, and thanks for joining us. Hello, and good local time, everyone. <laughs> uh, so most people know of your work, beginning with the Sunflower Movement and, and GovZero. But I want to start our conversation before that. You are, at least according to my research, a certifiable genius, someone with a 180-plus IQ, and you are actually a living case of the Albert Einstein school quandary. You were too smart for your school teachers and your fellow classmates. And at the age of 14, you dropped out and started your own IT company. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, the 180, uh, that's centimeters only. Um, (laughs) (laughs) For for adults, really, IQ is meaningless. Um, Anyone with uh, a mobile phone and some apps can easily get uh, more than 160 uh, in a ways adult test. and above which, by the way, there really is no numbers available. And so uh, my point of dropping out of junior high school is with the full blessing of the head of the school. I remember going to her, Principal uh, Du Weiping, uh, with an email printout of the conversations that I had with uh, people posting their preprint papers on the archive.org server, which was very new back then and still is, in a sense, it's open access movement. Um, and so people did not know that I was just 14 years old, that I uh, wrote the email, uh, looking up the dictionaries a lot. My English wasn't that good back then. They just care about the common values and the research that we can do. And back at the time, I was very interested in assistive intelligence, that is to say AI that helps people understand each other and build trust uh, with each other. And so I was doing research and I told the head of school, look, uh, my textbooks are all 10 years at least out of date. So do you want me to stay in the school system, in the institution, or do you want me to do some research? And after thinking about it for a couple of minutes, Principal Du said, okay, from tomorrow on, you don't have to go to school anymore and I will cover for you. And so this has instilled me this optimism in the innovation in the public sector. So that's actually really a unique story in and of itself. Is that something that's common in Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nowadays it's very common, up to 10% of Students in Taiwan now uh, can choose homeschooling or experimental education as an institution or as a group. Uh, back then, though, back in 1995, that was not legal. Uh, I would have been fined 100 Taiwan dollars uh, a day or something for refusing to go to mandatory education. 
So that's why the head of principal support and my teacher support is so important because they would have to essentially fake the record. But of course, it's far past oh, wow. the persecution. Yes. So uh, it's safe disclosing that. So the, um, we have a timeline of 1995 here. You are given cover from your school to get out of school. And, and how did your parents sort of react to that whole thing? I'm assuming they were very supportive. But they're supportive, but they also made sure that I continue my education. So they recommended uh, their university professors uh, because my parents both went to the National Jiangsu University, which uh, conveniently is just 15 minutes walk from my house mm. uh, back then. <laughs> and so uh, I literally uh, enrolled uh, in the Alba Mata, my mother's school, <laughs> my father's school, um, as someone who just I, I, I know now crushed uh, the conversations uh, and without getting a degree. And so I uh, studied uh, with the same professors uh, that told my uh, parents, uh, for example, like modern thoughts around philosophy, around humanities, around sociology uh, and things like that. And because all these humanities really require people uh, to be in the same room or I guess across the same uh, high school with connection and deliberate together in order to learn critical and creative uh, and compassionate thinking. It's not like coding, which I can learn perfectly well by myself. Now, from my understanding, your parents were both journalists? That's right. That's right. Yes. You have taken a very strong approach to government and activism and in, in civic engagement. Were your parents influencing you at all in terms of how to, yeah? So, very much so. So, um, for example, my mom uh, was one of the co-founders of the Homemakers Union, which started as a uh, pro-environment uh, NGO, but very quickly grew into a consumer co-op, uh, actually the largest consumer co-op in Taiwan, uh, that uh, makes sure that people participate uh, in the accountability when it comes to food safety and sustainable farming. And my dad was also uh, one of the initiators of the community college system in Taiwan that ensures lifelong education and started uh, by social activists that uh, basically said that instead of going into a university for academic reasons, people should go to a college uh, in order to improve the society, the community around them. So I guess uh, I was uh, immersed. It was kind of by osmosis that in my mind, technology should be used to further democracy, human rights, and freedom of speech, rather than to surveil and to censor. And that was something that was really interesting while I was preparing for this interview, that in a lot of your talks, you'd mention how Taiwan was freed at the, pretty much the same time the internet was becoming popular, and you link the two very closely together. And, and I believe that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you, would you consider yourself also a cyberpunk, like one of those 90s cyberpunks? Mm -hmm. You would, well, eh? Um, <laughs> what, right. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I was actually on the cypherpunk. Cypherpunk, sorry. Sorry, I apologize. Cypherpunk. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's the crypto anarchist uh, that eventually would lead to uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that is basically people who want to uh, make a difference, I would say, material, like a physical code, physical law. Uh, that governs what is transparent, what is opaque, and so on. So code is like law, but it's not just a text, not just what people interpret, but it's also basically shape the realities for us to connect over the cyberspace. So the cypherpunk said, instead of just a few elites understand the code and a code for the people, 
we should code with the people or even through social innovation take our work after the people as you can see on the ethereum smart contract uh, and their own community forks i i'm, I'm uh, still doing entrepreneurship so uh, my day job may be digital minister but in my copious free time i'm also moonlighting <laughs> <laughs> as a civic hacker with the likes of Vitalik Buterin uh, and Daniel Allen, Glenn Weil, and so on, on radical exchange as a board member to try out new governance methods such as quadratic voting, quadratic funding, and so on, on the Ethereum community and taking the best or at least better practices from Ethereum and uh, projecting it to our day-to-day uh, -day institutional work. That's my day job, for example, the presidential hackathon, use quadratic voting, which if you have played Civilization six i think gathering storm uh that was the voting method used there so we just take it straight away into our presidential hackathon yeah, a sidebar to this conversation this will be the little bit about me i have been a civilizations fan since civilization one in like 1991 that's the only game i play the only video game i play is civ same here uh, same here there you go that's uh, right well i also play nethack but yes civilization is the best okay so let's go back to sort of those early days again. You've just left school. You are doing some research work and you founded an IT company. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about that. Say that again. Co-founded. Co-founded. Yeah, so yeah, it, it uh, started uh, as a press and I was not a shareholder back then. I was just uh, commissioned uh, to write a book uh, about the road to cyberspace. That's the title of the book. But uh, then... How old are you at this time? Uh, 14, 15, yeah. <laughs> You're 14, 15 being asked to, to write a book. That's impressive. Co-write co a book. I mean, it's, it's a book of uh, 10 uh, essays of how uh, we made our uh, road to cyberspace. How did we encounter this strange new culture built on rough consensus and running code? Uh, and then, of course, that's also the early days of e-commerce, of this brand new technology called the SSL uh, and yeah. things like that. So... Um, I very quickly found that in order to reach out to more audience, it's a really good idea to build a website and handle e-commerce, a new thing back then, uh, to sell our books. Uh, and so um, I wrote this uh, unofficial homepage of the publisher's homepage and uh, offering uh, the book catalog and selling the books online. And so that took me into the interesting world of Standard making because uh, people mm. were using very different browsers back then with very different capabilities. And I was amazed how people could agree on uh, like using the blink tag or not using the blink tag in this kind of interesting conversations online. And each side has no coercive force over the other. And so I was then uh, recruited as a first at the CTO and later on also a shareholder to the Inforium company that was uh, basically some of the shareholders from the book publisher decided to start building software, taking what we have learned, building our own website into a larger e-commerce website. So my earliest projects were, for example, a meta search engine called Fusion Search that combines like Spotlight, searching your own computer with, say, the likes of Alta Vista um, and uh, Lightcoast. And I'm sure everybody remembers that. No, not really, <laughs> of the early search engine. And then we also work on Kubid, uh, which is the first C2C auction site in Taiwan. Oh, wow. So again, you're in your teenage years here and you're already a CTO. Is that when 
you moved to Silicon Valley to work on this? That would come later. So when I was CTO, I was 16 uh, at the time. And I think I become a consultant by 17 uh, and consulting for the company that would later be named BenQ, but at that time it was still called yeah. Acer Peripheral. And then uh, Acer, of course, being the personal computers, a very large company in Taiwan, a very notable international brand even back then. Um, and so Acer and the Acer Group uh, was interested in setting up a investment branch that would look at early startups in Silicon Valley and other places. And so I was first consulting with the main investor principal in the Acer Peripheral, later on BenQ, a company, the Darley Ventures. And then later on, which, uh, after reviewing uh, so many pitches from so many entrepreneurs, I thought it might be a good idea to start one myself. And yeah. then I moved to San Jose for a little while. So what did you create? Um, so it was called OurNet. Uh, it is basically a secure scuttlebutt uh, nowadays. Say, say that again, secure scuttlebutt? Yeah, that's a, it's the closest to our original imagination back then. So if you search for SSB or secure scuttlebutt, it's basically a, a social network uh, without any central hosted um, machines. It's a peer-to-peer, like people set up bulletin board systems uh, on their own computers, but with a way to uh, organically connect either via sneakernet uh, or via uh, like uh, sharing a common Wi-Fi and things like that. And so that you can share essentially your diaries uh, to other people in a way that uh, resists censorship. Uh, and so it's all end-to-end encrypted and, and so on. So although uh, at that time there was no persistent uh, like 4G connection uh, for everyone, so we were quite ahead of the time, the core principles uh, really apply and really would help. When I later on joined the free software, which was then forked as open source uh, movements, and for example, translated a lot of the Freenet, which was the first generation uh, software that would break out of the Great Firewall and so on. So Freenet, again, is founded on pretty much the same principles as OurNet. Uh, that was my uh, first startup in San Jose. From my understanding, there's actually a bit of a, a, a subculture that there, there's, there, there's very strong and, and stringent free software people and open source people, and there's a very big demarca- demarcation line within those communities. How would you classify yourself between the two? Do you just jump between both or do you feel very strongly about one over another? Well, we, we never had a skiism in Taiwan, though. Uh, I helped naming uh, the association in Taiwan. We call it the Software Liberty Association Taiwan or SLOT. Mm. Uh, and that's important that we focus on liberty because that's the idea could both be interpreted uh, from this collective liberty point of view, like against surveillance, uh, capitalism or statism, and that's called liberty. But it could also be interpreted from a market point of view as a liberal market that early movers cannot uh, monopolize and prevent later innovators from joining. So while the free software, of course, is a human right argument, essentially an open source economic argument, I think liberalism really captures uh, the ideas of both sides. Uh, And so I'm firmly taking all the sides. Going back to San Jose, you created this startup. How old are you approximately? Uh, 19. 19 years old. You're from another country. You're in the United States now. Your English is probably better than when it was when you were 14 and 16. But how was that journey like in terms of you're not just trying to live now in San Jose. You're trying to make business deals, find partnerships, secure funding, create a team. Like, How was that like? 
Well, it, it was a lot of fun. And I very quickly discovered this uh, open source movement has a lot of synergy with what I'm uh, trying to make uh, at the time. Because the open source communities at the time was trying to find out what is the best way for hundreds of thousands of unrelated people who have not met at all and somehow to find a way to measure trustworthiness when it comes to uh, accepting contributors. And that was, of course, at the time, a lot of experiments like Kuroshin, uh, like the Slash, uh, which powers Slash Dot, and many other, uh, like uh, Nutella and many other peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, ways to build those structures. And so, uh, and then I also noted that it created a lot of uh, power pensions, uh, for example, with the Napster, uh, technology oh, yeah. with existing industries. Uh, and so I think my strategy uh, at the time was simply to introduce the, the most portable technology that could create social movements out of the creative people. And so we started this idea called Elixis, uh, which stands for Elixir Nexus, which is people with uh, creative impulses uh, using open source tools and uh, working together, co-creating uh, larger than themselves uh, collectives. And we, the, our internet people, would support the technologies, including the wikis, including a mailing list, including the code repositories. Uh, and then we took, for example, the subversion uh, version control system. And one of my co-founders, CEO Gao, did a distributed versioning plugin on top of that called SVK, uh, which was really, really nifty before Git came along and we all converted mm. to Git. Uh, and so on. And, and so later on, uh, our company would power the first version of Open Foundry, which is Taiwan's national project of creating something like GitHub. And then I will also use uh, that uh, hosting technology to host Pugs, which is the first implementation of Raku. Uh, at the time, it's not called Raku, it's called Pro 6 uh, language and unite basically people from the functional and object-oriented and command line and scripting communities together to create a brand new language and so on. And at that time, I would have been like 24 years old. So it's roughly four years of uh, startup time. Okay, so you spent quite a bit of time in San Jose creating this this uh, startup. I, I fly back to, to Taipei after I realized that uh, I can bootstrap and uh, drink our own champagne, so to speak, using uh, these <laughs> collaborative course, uh, in order to uh, work well with communities of all kinds. So, uh, no, I didn't stay in San Jose, or for that matter, uh, when I started the Pugs project in 2004, I didn't stay in any city. I uh, hosted or uh, co-created more than 20 hackathons in 20 cities uh, all across the world. So I, I just actively looked like for a douche, I guess. Um, people who have uh, a free couch in their home and that are passionate about open source and free software communities and we can co-create something together until they get fed up with me and then send me a uh, address at the next stop uh, to go to. <laughs> so no, I was not staying in any city. I was couch surfing. Uh, well, you know, based on your on your personal history of the the accomplishments you've had, I wouldn't be surprised if you helped create couchsurfing.org. <laughs> no, that is not that is not. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you spent a lot of time in, in San Jose and Taipei creating this, this startup. When did, what, did you have like an exit strategy? Did you sell the company? Well, uh, later on, uh, I would work uh, with the Social Text, which was also one of the companies that took Wiki and took microblogging uh, from the uh, larger internet and packaged it as enterprise social 
productivity software. So I uh, first uh, worked on some extensions. For example, I wrote the earliest sub-ESA edit slash quickie uh, in integration. Sub-ESA edit being the first prototype of the multi-people collaborative editing document experience. Uh, and so uh, I merged that uh, with the Quickie uh, wiki system, which we were using in our internet startup, uh, powering the uh, Open Foundry. And so I worked with Ingi13net, uh, the person who created the Quickie software uh, to make it real-time collaborative. And so wow. that would then take me to work with uh, Dan Brinklin, um, uh, inventor of VisiCalc, uh, and at the time was working on WikiCalc which uh, would allow people to edit spreadsheets together. All this were like two or three years before uh, Google Spreadsheet. And that would then take me into a more permanent position in social text. Uh, I call my position untitled page, uh, meaning that I don't have a official title, but I'm a, like a page that um, sends uh, the messages and also uh, kind of fulfill any whatever errands that need to be done uh, in social text. So after a while, I, uh, my professional career kind of just merged uh, into the social text vision, and that continued all the way until social text uh, exited and sold to people fluent. Uh, I think that was 2013 or something, and I uh, retired after a year or so after that. So I, I want to get the chronology right uh, a little bit here. So uh, in Farian, uh, that was in 1996 to 1998. Uh, and then in around year 2000, uh, that's our internet, first in San Jose and in Taipei and then in many other cities. And that continued until 2005 or so, 2006. Uh, and then uh, in which uh, time I was working full-time on the Pro6 uh, language for a couple of years. And then afterwards, in 2008, I would join Social Text with also Sio Gao, uh, my co-founder in the, our internet days. And that continued from uh, 2008 all the way to uh, 2013, 14-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, and I still am uh, retained as an independent contractor uh, at the time, uh, starting 2010, uh, not only with Social Text, but also with Apple. Uh, and then 2000. 13 would also bring me uh, to work with the Oxford University Press. So when I retired, um, I was still holding three uh, con consultant positions uh, with Apple Social Text and Oxford University Press, respectively. And then we occupied the parliament uh, in 2014, and my life took a very interesting turn uh, and then became digital minister in 2016. Before we get to or what happened in your parliament. And we'll, we only have about 10 minutes left of your time. So I don't think we're going to get a chance to do a full dive. I'm actually going to sort of ask if maybe we can do a, a part two recording perhaps in the future, because this has been a fascinating conversation already. Um, so around 2013, you, uh, you retire from your work. But during that 2008, 2013, is that when you started getting involved with the Sunflower Movement? Like when did that start happening and the genesis for it uh in late 2012 started the gov Zero movement so mm -hmm. i wasn't uh, one of the co-founders i joined early 2013 working on dictionary technologies lexicography uh, but in late 2012 there was this uh, advertisement paid by the government on youtube called the economic boost up plan uh, and the plan was so complicated that they filmed 
for ordinary citizens looking at the plan, you know, wish past them uh, in a word cloud and looking very confused. And while a voiceover says, oh, you don't have to understand it, you just have to do it. Uh, and the uh, <laughs> advertisement was immediately flagged as spam by angry <laughs> netizens uh, <laughs> because that's basically uh, elitism, right? Yeah, so C.O. Gao and three of uh, his classmates back uh, when he was in NDU uh, just uh, started this budget visualization, basically making a case that people don't understand the budget and the BUSA plan, not because people are dumb, but because the government's way of presenting them are dumb. And so they created this visualization, which is interactive, and you comment over each particular part of the budget that you don't like or you don't uh, understand. Uh, and so on, which, by the way, is now firmly part of our participation platform, join.gov.tw, including all the budget visualizations. And so uh, they would begin with the slogan of fork the government, pronunciation is very important, forking the government, making sure that any .gov.tw website that they didn't like, they just change an O to a zero. So you can go to a shadow government and don't have to pay for advertisement because you can just take the same government website and change one letter. Uh, so that really attracted me. Um, and so on uh, early 2013, I joined uh, to do crowd lexicography, basically making sure that all the Taiwanese languages, including Mandarin, Daiyi, Holog, and so on, as well as English, German, French, have this unified dictionary uh, that is open source. I relinquish all the copyright and I work with hundreds of designers and coders to, to make that happen. And so it was fun. And then uh, that gathered a lot of people over a lot of different projects. So by early 2014, we're ready um, to support the activists. Uh, we as hacktivists uh, used the then new technology called live streaming to support on the street protest. Uh, and then later on, of course, when the protester would then break into the parliament and start deliberating, of course, we continue our support in their communication rights. So, and, and this is where I think our first episode is going to end is, is when you guys sort of stormed the Bastille, as it were. But for the next five minutes, I want to talk about that, that period of time between 2008, 2013, 2012, before you, you really got involved with GovZero. Um, what were you doing specifically in terms of your own personal growth. And you have been very eloquent in describing the work you did. But I'll give you an example. I'm going to sort of chum the waters a little bit here. In, in the research that I did, I came upon a very interesting website that I think is probably yours. AudreyT.org. Ah, right. That's, that's my personal website. And a yes. Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted to do was Confirm that is in fact you. And on this page is what appears to be a very beautiful poem. Is this something that you wrote in that sort of 2008, 2012 period? If not, when was it written? What does it represent for you? I translated the poem to English. Okay. Uh, but uh, but I, I think I have the byline of the author's name uh, on it. I did not take undue credit. Sorry, you know what's funny? Because the way I read it here, I thought it was part of the poem. Oh, no, no, no. no. So, yes, because I see Chen Yen, I believe. Chen Wiyuan? The author. Yeah, okay. Chen Yiwen. Chen Yiwen is the author of the poem. Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, doing a lot of translation. Uh, I translated, uh, I don't know, the last few pages of Finnegan's Wake. Uh, oh, wow. Very difficult. 
Uh, and then uh, I translated some, I guess, Leonard Cohen songs and poetry uh, and so on. Uh, I'm uh, basically shaping myself to be a poetician, uh, if you will. Uh, and it. then I still have my job description pinned uh, on the top of my Twitter, which talks about, you know, when we see the Internet of Things, let's make it the Internet of Beings and so on. And, and that is also what I'm working on. Basically, I'm working on poetics uh, that would, uh, I guess, influence my political work. I would then refer to myself as a poetician, basically changing the way instead of singularity, we need to think about the plurality, which is already here and so on. Uh, I was preparing myself to do that. Of course, my work with the Siri team also helps. The Siri team hired quite a few poets because Siri only has a few seconds of your attention and we want to maximize the use of those few seconds. So I want to go back to this poem on this page here, which I don't know if you remember it because I'm putting you on the spot a little. No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I have pretty good memory. Yeah, I, oh, I'm, I have no doubts of that. Um, but I'm curious to know why you chose this poem. Yeah, uh, part of the uh, reason uh, is my involvement with the Raku uh, community at that time, still Copra 6. Uh, the mascot uh, is a butterfly, uh, and the butterfly, of course, signifies that uh, instead of like a camel, uh, which was the um, um, mascot for Pro 5 for a long time, uh, I guess people later on would choose a raptor or, or whatever. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so the butterfly to me uh, signifies a transformation uh, that instead of just digitizing things or optimizing things, uh, we would use digital to um, innovate, to imagine unlikely scenarios previously considered simply impossible, like uh, millions of people listening to one another at the same time that's empowered by digital technologies. So. I guess a lot of my work in the Silicon Valley and uh, back to Taipei was about digitization, about optimizing the process. But uh, during the, the, the few years uh, that you just uh, outlined, I think uh, my mind uh, took me to a more imaginary, uh, more utopic, uh, if you will, uh, more utopian imaginations of societies, uh, for example, rivers and mountains that could vote and things like that. And so I chose the poem as the homepage uh, because uh, it signified to me the transformational capacity that digital technologies has when once we bring the tech to people, and by people I mean any being that can suffer, uh, rather than asking people to conform to technology. That's uh, it's a wonderful way to, to frame it. And it, it's, it's a very, you have been through a very interesting journey, and you, the work you're doing is envied by many. And we're going to end our conversation here. And you've already committed on tape that you're willing to do a part two for this interview to continue because I want to get involved into more details about this, um, the, the, what happened with GovZero, Sunflower Movement, uh, going in and, and, and sitting in into the parliament and your role as a digital minister as well. Um, so before I close out our episode, is there anything you want to say? Well, aside from my usual uh, concluding remark, uh, may you live long and prosper, I, I would uh, like to quickly just read out the poem since you uh, brought it up as a recital. Uh, and I think uh, that will uh, connect very well to our next podcast, if you can uh, allow me a few seconds to read it. I would love for you to do that. Okay. So the poem's called Like a Larva Holding On for Transformation is by Chen Yi Wen, translation by yours truly. Um, I would like you to firmly resist your weakness. 
like a chrysalis holding back a butterfly, a maple leaf resisting the autumn, a newly splashed droplet resisting breakup. I would like you to balance your inner building, like the structure of a snowflake, the four petals of a finger tree flower, a quatrain on a yellow paper scroll, a still night, an empty spring mountain. I would like you to tolerate the secrets of a narcissist, forgive the twists of a moonlit river, look straight at the murky sky as rain falls down, just like listening to a naked prayer, like the ocean embracing the absolution of a storm. Then maybe you would be willing to walk through a declining border town, through a prosperous metropolis, see life, see death. See all the bustle and transience, dignity and cold lifelessness. Sometimes life is as quietly beautiful as a poem, as desolate as a vine, as intense as a soaring eagle, as lonely as the dust-covered stella. And so time passes, places alter, faces change. It has been a long journey. We return to the room we set a throne. Origin and destination curl into a perfect ring. I shall recognize the look in your eyes after calibration. Clear, unswerving, like steel beads that do not rust. Roundly in a dark room, reflecting your light. Thank you. Well, thank you, Audrey. And I don't think there's any other way for me to close this episode than saying, until next time, let's make it open. Yes, uh, live long and prosper.